0: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen.
1: Once you start looking, you notice this erasure all over the place in modern day liberalism. Uh, There was this sort of vogue early on in the Trump years for listing and, you know, talking about protest movements and resistance movements throughout American history. And I went through a whole bunch of these, you know, different accounts of historical protest and resistance, and they, all of them, omit labor.
0: Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash not seen radio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash not seen radio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Thomas Frank. He's the author of Listen Liberal, Pity the Billionaire, The Wrecking Crew, and What's the Matter with Kansas? A former columnist for the Wall Street Journal and Harper's Magazine, Thomas Frank is the founding editor of The Baffler and writes regularly for The Guardian. He lives outside Washington, D.C., and today we're talking about his recent book, The People Know, a brief history of anti-populism. Thomas Frank, I'm a big fan. Welcome to Things Not Seen.
1: It is my pleasure to be here, sir.
0: Well, so I'm going to start in a little bit of a strange place, and I'm going to ask you to be patient with me. So, years ago, a writer by the name of Peter Lamborn Wilson, writing under the name Hakeem Bay, wrote a, a little essay, a series of essays, actually, that are grouped under the name The Temporary Autonomous Zone. In that group of essays, he makes a statement. He's an anarchist, but he makes the statement, you know, that phrase, no one will be free until everyone is free? Well, let's just dispense with that statement. You worry about your own freedom. A little later, there's a writer by the name of Murray Bookchin, who also describes himself as an anarchist, and he writes a screed against this series of essays, and he calls the the screed social anarchism versus lifestyle anarchism, an unbreachable chasm. And so Bookchin's basic argument is, you know, you're using this word anarchism, but you're using it basically as a way of just building yourself up, building your own little fiefdom, your own little pirate utopia. What struck me as I was reading your book, The People Know, is that we can find examples where people use this same term in this particular example, anarchism, but in your particular populism, one meaning it as a broad social arrangement for the common good, populism, anarchism, the other for personal gain, kind of lifestyle populism or lifestyle anarchism. Now, this was the impression that I had when I was reading your book. But as I present this to you, I want to give you the opportunity to tell me that I'm full of hot air have I misunderstood what you're trying to get at here in the book or would you would you agree and expand upon the idea that maybe we have these terms in your case populism that gets used as a kind of flippable coin one side landing on the personal the kind of lifestyle side the other landing on the more social the common good side
1: uh, yeah, wow. Um, Mr. David Dalt, that was quite a, uh <laughs> interesting way of getting at the sort of central question here, which is the way this word has been redefined over over the years, the sort of cultural populism. I don't go into that in a lot of depth here, although I have in other books I've written. Uh, by the way, you 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 missed something there that that would be a lot of fun, which which is the people who think what what do they call it? The, the the people who think anarchy is the free market?
0: Yeah, exactly. That, yeah.
1: <laughs> you now, what is there's a name for that? There's something they call themselves some some form of anarchism, but by that by that logic, it's like you know William McKinley was the greatest anarchist of all time.
0: Well, and so, but this, this picks up then on, on what you're trying to do in the book, you are really trying to interrogate this word populism.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And the way, well, so I, I, but you know how I do, I, how I write, I I do everything historically. So, you know, when, when you hear, uh, take a step back, you're in, you're in Hyde Park in Chicago, am I right? That's correct. So when I lived there in the um, 80s and 90s, and up, up until quite recent, well, about 10 years ago, I moved away. But, when I went there as a graduate student at the University of Chicago, I was studying history, and the the subject I studied when I got there was populism, by which we mean the American farmer labor third party. That was founded in in the 1890s and they had this sort of brief life before flaming out. And I wanted to study it, and I, uh, and it was it was uh like studying anything back then. It was it was difficult. You had to le- read a lot of things on microfilm readers and go to archives and whatnot. And I discovered at some point that everybody and his brother was studying populism, and there was very you know was, the trick was finding some aspect of it to write about that nobody else had written about. And uh, and I and I got frustrated with it and moved on to other things. But then here we are, how many years later, almost 40 years later, and I discover that the word is being, has come to be used universally by, you know, in in this sort of consensus fashion in entirely the opposite way that it was used, you know, by my uh, colleagues and I back in the 1980s. And what's more, that the people who are using Populism to mean a kind of proto-fascism, you know, racist authoritarianism, basically, is, is how they use it nowadays. That the people who use the word this way don't seem to be aware that the movement I went to study at the University of Chicago even existed. Okay. This is like, this is this is a kind of dysfunction that's way beyond what you're talking about. You're talking about two people arguing over the word. I'm talking about people who've just reclaimed the word and pretend not to know. Or, or to, to uh, utterly dismiss the earlier meaning of the word, and so I was uh, about a year ago, two years ago I decided to write this book, <laughs> and the first step I decided to take was was to find out where the word came from. You know, is it really uh, just uh, a word that means any old thing you want? You know, and you and so it's you know you can you can say it means proto fascist, you can say it means you know whatever you can say it means Donald Trump, you can say it means Marine Le Pen. Or does it have a a more specific origin? And so I looked up the origin story of the word. And it turns out that when you start digging, you can find where it came from. And it did come from those farmer sort of agricultural-based reformers back in the 1890s. They made up the word deliberately. It was a new coinage, completely man-made, invented word. We know when it was invented, almost to the day. Uh, we know where it was invented. It was on a train between Kansas City and Topeka. By the way, I'm, I'm in Kansas City right now, so I'm, uh, I'm about 20 miles from where the word was invented. And um, that was pretty much the only Meaning of the word up into the 1950s, people did apply the word populism to mean things, movements other than that reform, you know, that American reform movement of the 1890s, but only because those those other things that they applied it to in some way resembled the American reform movement. They didn't just apply it willy nilly to whatever the hell they felt like applying it to, you know, Donald Trump, that sort of thing. And uh, that's, that's the story of the book that, or that's, I should say, that's the starting point of the book. How did this happen? And what I uncover is a really interesting story of, of how the word got twisted around. Long answer for your question. How do you like that? Yeah, I
0: love it. I love it. So, just so listeners are aware, this is Things Not Seen, and I'm David Dalton. We're speaking today with Thomas Frank about his recent book, The People Know A Brief History of Anti Populism. And so, I want to follow exactly what you just said. So, you say in your introduction to the book, The People Know, you say, well, we could go back to the etymological roots of this. Word And say, well, it's a blank slate, but it actually has a history, and if we navigate in ignorance of that history, there's a politics to that ignorance. There's a
1: way that yes that the, that that, it, yes, and that's exactly the that is a good way to put it yes i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to swipe that from you. There's a politics to this ignorance. Tell us about that politics. Line out for
0: us what is the politics of ignorance around the word populism?
1: It comes from this the, the redefinition of it comes from so populism was a huge mass movement. You know, millions and millions of farmers and um, and also industrial workers, union members, that kind of thing in the 1890s. And when populism got beaten down, specifically in the year 1896, in the big presidential election that year, the uh, the people who beat it down invented a sort of archetype of what populism really meant. Okay, so the populists said what their causes were, and you can go back and look it up. It's it's. Easy to do. There's been, as I've said at the start, hundreds of books written about these guys, what they stood for, what their causes were. They wanted nationalization of the railroads. They wanted a, you know, better currency. They wanted to get off the gold standard. They wanted votes for women. They et cetera, et cetera. They wanted a secret ballot. You know. Uh, There's you you can easily find out what populism wanted. And it's it it's a pretty standard reform movement for the period, similar to the Labor Party in England or the Social Democrats in Germany. But the people who the Republican Party in the uh, in the United States and its various allies, by which I mean the entire journalist, you know, the uh, newspaper establishment of the country, also the academic establishment, also the business establishment, also the clergy, clerical establishment came together in 1896 to attack what they called populism, and they used it as a a word for uh, defaming the Democratic candidate this year, whose name was William Jennings Bryan. And they said that what populism really was, is it was an an uprising of the unfit, that it was uh, people who, you know, uh, society's losers trying to use politics to gain power over society's rightful winners. And so populism was, it was a form of mental illness. It was. I mean, they described it in all of these ways. It was. uh, uh, It was anti-intellectualism. It was people who were resisting the. You know, the 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 authority of their of expertise. It was. It was bigoted against upper class people. It was unfair to the wealthy and the accomplished, Uh, and on and on down down the list. It was. By the way, they also used the word anarchy to describe it all the time, for roundabout reasons that have. I mean. Do you want to know why they called it that? Yeah, please go
0: ahead. Tell us why they called it that.
1: You're there in Chicago. So they did it. They called them that because William Jennings Bryan was nominated at the Democratic Convention in Chicago. The man who sort of technically presided over that convention was... John P. Altgeld, who was the Governor of Illinois, and Altgeld had pardoned the Haymarket anarchists and so Altgeld was was always referred to in the East Coast press as the anarchist Altgeld, and uh, they, they would often say that he was the real power behind populism in fact he had, he had nothing to do with it but that's how, that's what they would that's how they would describe it so uh i mean it, the way they reasoned back then was in, in the newspapers is just it's hilarious anyhow there's this hysterical reaction to uh to brian who they called a populist and there was you know he was the populist did technically endorse him but they called so they called his they labeled his entire movement uh, populism in order to defame it in this very particular way. Let me ask you then. So
0: one of the ways that this is is classed throughout your book, it's classed with a term, the democracy scare. And just briefly, if you could tell us how the idea of the democracy scare works in these various politicizations of the word populism.
1: Yes, it's a, a kind of of mass hysteria among the ruling class that the uh, you know that that democracy has taken us down the wrong path democracy is putting bad people in charge democracy is overthrowing rightful elites and you see democracy scares they they recur with slightly different you know variations in theme but they uh, they recur throughout american history there's another one in the mid 1930s that's in response to the rise of roosevelt and the labor movement i mean we're in we're in the middle of one today you know, and and the one today uses the word, you know, uses the word populism again to describe the, uh, you know, the the enemies, the the people, the democracy out of control, the less the the you know the unfit people rising up against their rightful ruling class, their rightful masters, the educated, the experts. Well,
0: and we'll get into all of this as our conversation continues. But right now, for our listeners' sake, I just want to let you know that this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and today we're talking to Thomas Frank. He's the author of many books, including Listen, Liberal. Pity the Billionaire, The Wrecking Crew, and What's the Matter with Kansas. He's a founding editor of the Baffler magazine. He writes regularly for The Guardian in the UK. And today we're talking about his recent book, The People Know, a brief history of anti-populism, where he looks at this word populism, interrogates it, and really brings out some of the spirit of our current time by tying it back, as he was saying just a moment ago, to some of the events that happened at the turn of the last century in around 1896 to the New Deal. We'll get into all of this right after After the break, we'll be back in a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries, one-click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Today, we're speaking with Thomas Frank. He's a prolific author. He writes about history and politics. Today, we're talking about his recent book, The People Know, A Brief History of Anti-Populism. Well, I want to take you to an image that you give us late in the book, The People Know, where you're relaying... An incident that happened and was told to you by a teacher outside in the suburbs of Washington D.C. And uh, this teacher is there with a group of teenagers, and they're sort of talking about politics, and they're and and they're being asked sort of what is the most pressing political issue, what are the most pressing political issues of our time, and you hear LGBTQ issues, you hear race issues, you hear all manner, you hear about immigration, but you point out that what is conspicuous missing from this list is a concern for the rights of working people, a concern about labor. And in fact, when that's brought up in various circles, it's sort of batted away. I want to ask you about that dynamic and what that tells you about the moment that we're in with regard to these questions of populism.
1: The, the erasure of labor. By the way, this has one, been one of the themes of my writing ever since, <laughs> ever since the 90s, the erasure of labor from the sort of consciousness of American people. And I was just reminded of that. Here I am am in Kansas City. I've been getting exercised by riding my bike around. And I saw one of those yard signs that I refer to in the book, where it's uh, this sort of listing of progressive causes, you know, Black Lives Matter, uh, the environment, you know, believe science. Um, And the the, the sign has grown by several notches since I wrote about it in the book. It's, I think the the latest uh, line to be added to it is, Water is life. No person is illegal, you know, that sort of thing. And it says nothing about labor. And you find this, by the way, you, once you start looking, you notice this erasure all over the place in modern-day liberalism. Uh, there was this sort of vogue early on in the Trump years f- for listing and you know talking about protest movements and resistance movements throughout American history. And uh, it, I went through a whole bunch of these you know different accounts of historical protest and resistance, and they all of them omit labor. You know, all of those struggles in the 1930s right up to the present day is just left out. And of course, they also omit farmer protests, which <laughs> have been a, a, a really important theme in American life. It's kind of funny to think that we've that we've deleted those two things. You know, they're hugely important parts of American life. But yes, it is no longer really part of the consciousness of, of liberalism, the labor, farmers, you know, the whole idea of working class protest.
0: Well, and we can ask
1: the question, who benefits from that? Because you would oh, think- Well,
0: then come on to ask
1: it is to answer it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, so,
0: but but spell it out just so we have it clear. Oh, no, well, that's, you know, yeah,
1: the uh, that would be the, uh, you know, uh, upper middle class who makes up the uh, the sort of the people who control the Democratic Party, as well as the Republican Party, of course. I mean, the that's that's who benefits from n- never remembering that, you know, labor's place in in, in protest and in the history of of liberalism. But there is a deeper connection here uh, when, the, you know, and I, I want to take you back to this and back to the moment when labor was deleted. And it, it happened at first, first intellectually and then sort of uh, uh, more generally on the left. But it started with a movement in academia, uh, you know, big part of it right there at the University of Chicago in the 1950s. They were called the consensus intellectuals. And they're sort of uh, the leading historian of the consensus generation was a guy called Richard Hofstadter. He's probably the most famous um, American historian of all time. And when I was young, when I was a student there at Chicago, I really admired him because he's such an excellent writer, really admired his his prose style and the way The way he thought but he had a lifelong vendetta against populism, uh, which is uh, we're we're not going to go into why he hated populism so much. I'm talking about, again, about the historic movement in the 1890s in the American Midwest. But he hated them and he wanted to, you know, and, and he's the one that sort of came up with the modern day stereotype of the word that we associate with the word, which is to say that populism. What, and in fact, all mass movements of working people have these pathologies. They're pathological. There's something wrong with them mentally. OK, so they're paranoid. They're anti-intellectual. They're anti-immigrant. They're anti-Semitic. Well, He, uh, even, he, even, wrote,
0: he even wrote an essay called The Paranoid Style in American Politics. So that I mean, this right. really speaks to your point.
1: Yes that's right and it's uh, you know and and I'm not saying here that there is not a paranoid style in American politics there is and it's all around us right now what's annoying is that he built this into a stereotype that he called populism and he never he this is his as i say his lifelong project he the most important book he wrote on it was called the age of reform and every time he did this he was also doing something else at the same time all you know as as you know david all uh, history is is grounded in the present. And in the you know, present day, you're always uh, practicing a present day agenda, whether you want to or not. But Hofstadter most definitely was practicing a present day agenda, an agenda of 1955. And that agenda was a sort of manifesto for his cohort, for his class, for his friends, we, the new generation of intellectuals that was coming up in America and they were taking over the institutions, you know, the great institutions of American life. The corporations were now being run by MBAs rather than by heirs or billionaires or whatever. Uh, the government departments were now being run by people with PhDs who knew about the, rather than loyal, you know, Democrat or Republican partisans, even the Pentagon was now being run by political scientists like, you know, or, or people like Bob McNamara, Henry Kissinger. You know, that's who was, that's who was coming up. And, and the book was a manifesto for this, it was a, for, for this generation of people. It, the whole consensus school was basically about this group of people taking power in American life. And what Hofstadter's, his larger message was, is that that's how you get reform, is by having people like him and his friends running everything. That's how you get reform. All of them sitting around a big mahogany table in Washington, D.C., and agreeing with one another, coming to consensus. The, alter- or the alternative, the, the vision of reform that he wanted to downplay was the older one, the idea of a mass movement. The idea of social movements in America. So the labor movement in the 1930s or the farmer movement in the 1890s. And these he described as as uh, pathological. So mass movements cannot be trusted. Mass movements of ordinary people cannot be trusted for all of these reasons. But you can trust intellectuals. They get the job done. Well, and we'll dig into that a little bit because one of the things that you characterize this
0: movement that Hofstadter wanted, this has come to be called technocracy, meritocracy, and just
1: briefly lay out for us what that means. Uh, the idea that uh, you know expertise is is how you uh, how you manage the economy with twists of the knobs back in Washington DC and that's how every you know you can fix every problem that way, you can guarantee perpetual prosperity, etc. and it's it's the It's the ruling ideology of the Democratic Party. You look at someone like Barack Obama, uh, you know, a a meritocrat, you know, from one prestigious institution to another. You look at his cabinet, which is made up of other meritocrats, you know, prize winners, Harvard professors. And what and I've written about these these people many times. And uh, the way they bungle things, because this is the 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 uh, what you know these are these are people who come out of academia, but they're very they're extremely self interested. There are certain topics, for example, that they not only will never research, but they won't even acknowledge uh, need to be researched. And that, for example, elite failure, the expert failure you know, this this huge part of our national life as experts fail again and again and again, like Vietnam War, Iraq War, financial crisis, you know, bailouts of Wall Street or the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016. Experts fail all the time. But this is never acknowledged by them. It's always this ideal. You know, the ideal is what matters. You want to have the smart people in there. They'll get it done. They'll do it. They'll do the job right. And populism is a sort of a, a reaction against expertise. That's always how they describe it. Now, what Hofstadter did not admit and what your modern day anti-populists will never admit is that Hofstadter derived this theory from that backlash of 1896 that I talked about before, that sort of backlash of the extreme right against William Jennings Bryan. He basically picked that up, dusted it off, and recast it as social science in 1955. And that's where your entire sort of uh, language about about populism being this dreadful mass movement of stupid people, that's where that stupid and racist people, that's where all of that comes from, is from Richard Hofstadter. The other thing he, uh, that they never acknowledge and they never talk about is that Hofstadter's vision of populism was crushingly refuted within five years after he wrote that book crushingly, J- just it lay in ruins. Uh, other American historians just started immediately started publishing books and articles, uh, checking his claims and destroyed them all. I mean, the idea that populism was anti was not just anti-Semitic, but he said it was the, the origins of anti-Semitism in American life. It's, pro- it's a preposterous idea. It's ridiculous. Uh, and I'll write on down the line, like the idea that populism was anti-immigrant. I mean, a guy wrote, a whole book interrogating this by looking at populism at the county level in the state of kansas and just like disproving it again and again you know hundreds of pages disproving the Hofstadter thesis it's, it, it was crushingly refuted but his stereotype of populism which i said he took from the republicans of 1896 his stereotype of populism lives on and was embraced by liberals And is with us today all over the world as it is, you know, sort of mouthed by uh, liberal academics, uh, liberal journalists, liberal politicians. You see it everywhere. Open up The New York Times. There it is. That's simply how they use the word today. So it's a funny, uh, a funny story. It's a whole pedagogy, David, that is based on a mistake. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm
0: David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Thomas Frank about his recent book, The People Know, A Brief History of Anti-Populism. Well, I want to pick up on that idea, because oftentimes when we look at popular movements, mass movements, this rhetoric that Hofstadter and others laid out begins to be picked up. They're anti-intellectual. They, they don't they like experts. They, they resist knowledge. They resist understanding. But yeah. you, you say something. You say, it's not that they resist understanding. It's that ordinary citizens, and I'm quoting you here, have come to understand their situations all too well, and in that understanding, they begin to try and act to change the situation that have led to their, their poverty and their being left out of society. And that really begins to push the buttons where the resistance comes. And so their characterization as anti-intellectual is really, is really a non-starter, isn't it?
1: Well, it's a non-starter for you and me, uh, you know, for people who think about it, for them, it's, that's, it's, it's an incredibly satisfying, it's a, you know, it is a it is, a, it is a very nice and cozy and symmetrical little worldview. You know, the, the people stupid, the, you know, the the experts smart. You know, it's just it's as as gratifying a little ideology as it's possible to come up with. But no, it's not true in reality. That is not, that's not what populism did. That's not what pop, my definition of populism is, not what it ever does. It is about people who do understand their situation and understand that they have been Take populism, for example. These people were in love with learning. Okay, to characterize them as anti-intellectual is just—it's—it's it's just slander. These people were in love with learning. They—they—they they, they ate knowledge up. They founded universities. They set up lending libraries all over the Midwest. You know, they—the the book ends with this. Well, we can go into the details of that later. You're just going to take my take my word for it right now. But they did disagree with the experts of the day, the experts of the day, meaning the economists, the bankers, the people who are in charge of the system on the matter of the gold standard. Just to choose one very, very, very famous example, Uh, the experts of the day were like, you want to get off the gold standard? I mean, what's wrong with you? You must have you must have a mental illness if you want to get take America off the gold standard. You know the gold standard is the way of history. It's the way that every organized society, you know, it's got it's got the imprimatur of you know every of of civilization going back to the Romans. Blah 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 blah. And the the populists were like, no, it is deflationary. The gold standard is deflationary, and it is ruining our lives. And we can go into the details on that too. But the the funny thing is, the populists were right, and the experts were wrong on that question, as we know today. And so it is with so many other things. The New Deal, by the way, was greeted in exactly the same way with uh, hundreds of economists signing group letters denouncing the New Deal and its experimentation. It's, you know, it's, it's insane experimentation with the tried and true way of, that, that we have in the United States of running an economy. We know how an economy is run and this is not it. And those experts also were wrong. In the 1930s, and thank God, you know that we had a guy like Franklin Roosevelt who was willing to try unorthodox ideas. And what? So what I said, I'm sorry, and I know you want to get in here. What I settle on is that populism is not anti-intellectual, but it is usually anti-orthodox. It's usually got some beef with you know whatever is the prevailing idea of the day. Just to pick up on that, when we
0: then see this. Polarity between the meritocrats, the technocrats, the experts, and the populists, the mass movements, which you say love learning but don't necessarily truck with orthodoxy. The rhetoric that then gets used against them is well, if you want to do any kind of reform, that's not just a difference of opinion. Reform is folly. Reform is insanity. And so it's it's, it's mental illness. Yeah, yeah, mental illness characterizing the, the, the very idea of imagining a system wherein poor people might actually have the means to have a stable living, that it Itself must be mental illness.
1: Yes, and they said that again and again and again. In 1896, Uh, they said it again about Franklin Roosevelt. And uh, Hofstadter picked this up and made uh, made that into his career. He called it status anxiety. So whenever people who are on their way down in society, when they react in an irrational way. And this was his sort of his great theory uh, of American life. And uh, that basically means that poor people cannot complain because it's, it's by definition pathological. It's by definition uh, irrational and scapegoating and that sort of thing. And uh, so it's not a, you know, this whole consensus ideology, it's not really something that lends itself to allowing working class people to talk about their own situation. You can do nice things for them from on high. You know, you can give them reforms from the heights of, you know, whatever department or bureaucracy in Washington, D.C. You can give them a presence, but they can't do it themselves.
0: Well, and this is the rhetoric that we see even in the election of Donald Trump, the, the the think pieces that followed. Well, what what was it that caused working class people to vote for Donald Trump? And I right. hear
1: in that an echo of the same kind of status. It couldn't be rational. Exactly. So we're in another democracy scare now. And I do not think of Donald Trump as a as a genuine populist. Of course, I think of him as a kind of a fraud. And I've got by the way, this is, of course, I've written. Many books about the subject of fake populism. I wrote one about it called What's the Matter with Kansas back in uh, in the 2000s. The Republican Party deals in these kind of fake protest movements and has for a long time. And they're very successful. They're very they're very good at it. But when Trump got elected, contrary to everyone's expectations, Yes, that is exactly how they reacted, by rolling out this old stereotype from the 1890s via the 1950s and without any recognition that that's where it had come from. So a a stereotype from the 1890s, from the establishment, what would today be considered the extreme right wing of American politics, is now embraced by the centrist uh, Democrats. Absolutely. And their their understanding of Donald Trump. I mean, uh, summarize it in one word. Deplorables.
0: Well, and as, as we move towards break, just before we get off the subject of Richard Hofstadter, your book is, uh, I'll just say in reading it, it's, it's incredibly well-researched. It's, it's meticulous. And one of the things that jumped out to me was when you were discussing Hofstadter, you said, you know, he, he really didn't use archives very well. He really didn't go very <laughs> yeah. deep in this. And I, d- just, just briefly, you, you mentioned that scholars kind of went after him after the publication of some of these works. But what, what's the danger of a scholar like Hofstadter with that kind of position and name really failing to do proper research? Research.
1: Well, as I said, I, I used to really admire Hofstadter because what he was about was coming up with inventive explanations for things. And that's so his his, his way of practicing history was you know, read a lot of secondary and primary texts, but no, not digging a lot in the archives, but reading around what other historians were saying and then coming up with a really inventive theory. To explain it all. And the danger that, I mean, obviously, the danger of that is 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 completely missing the picture. But the other danger is that you're going to come up with um, something that is ideologically flattering to your cohort, but that doesn't hold water. And that's precisely what he did. But I, I say it's a danger. It's also that's why he is beloved. That's why he is a great success and the, and the still the most famous American historian of all time. If you're just joining
0: us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Thomas Frank about his recent book, The People Know, A Brief History of Anti-Populism. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Today, we're speaking with Thomas Frank, author of books like What's the Matter with Kansas? And we're talking about his recent book, The People Know, A Brief History of Anti-Populism. Well, within Catholic thought, there's a, a concept called subsidiarity, and I'll briefly define it for you. Uh, subsidiarity is an organizing principle that, that says that matters ought to be handled by the smallest, lowest, or least centralized, competent authority, and that political decisions should be taken at the local level if possible, rather than by some kind of centralizing authority. I'm interested in that because when you're talking about populism, there's, a I think, a misconception about pop- populism that it's, it's very anti-government. Government. That's not what you're saying in your book the people know instead there, oh, no. there no, are times when populists are really in favor of government kind of stepping in and doing things tell us about that dynamic
1: Absolutely yeah well I mean these are again these are small farmers they probably wouldn't have disagreed with what you just said they uh, of course they want to control over their own lives but in order to achieve that they you know they they were in a world of unregulated monopolies you got to remember put yourself in the 1890s uh, a railroad is a monopoly by definition to the people you know it's what they call a natural monopoly to the people who live along its tracks it's the only choice they have and um the banks of course control uh people's lives you know there's you have no way of of of, uh, of exerting a force over the banks, but they control every aspect of your life or the local merchants in your town. And uh, uh, populism wanted the government to step in and do something about this and, and make it possible for them to regain control over their own lives. So nationalizing the railroads uh, was was part of that idea. They also had this other here in Kansas. At least they had this scheme where the the various state legislatures that were con- controlled by populists, like meaning Nebraska, Kansas, uh, and uh, they came close in Texas. They would build their own railroad, <laughs> their own railroad down to the uh, uh, Gulf of Mexico in Texas, and and export their products that way. You know, this sort of thing. They wanted um, the you know the Federal Reserve uh, was in some ways was a very populist kind of idea. It was the, I mean, it hasn't worked out that way at all, but the idea behind it was a very populist one, you know, regulate the banks, make sure that they are, that banking policy in this country, you know, interest rates in this country is established not by some guy in a private office on wall street in New York city, but instead is established by the government, which is technically the agent of all of us. You know, that was, that's, The idea behind it, these wars over banks, you know, that go on and on and on in this country over interest rates and over how the economy should be run. Uh, So that's by the way, there's another really interesting aspect to this that I don't know if you're thinking about. I'm not a Catholic. I was raised a Protestant. But what you see now so uh, let me take a step back. There was a historian named Larry Goodwin wrote a famous book about populism in the 1970s. And when I say that, I mean the movement in the 1890s. And he later in life became a theorist of, of populist movements, of you know the labor movement, the civil rights movement. And how do you build a movement like that? He was fascinated by that subject. How do you build a movement like that? You know, these are mass movements of working class people, and they this is how you bring. He, it's the opposite theory is Hofstadter. This is how you bring change in American life. This is how you shake things up is with these gigantic mass movements of working people. How do you build one? And one of the terms that he used when he was describing this was ideological patience. You know, you're working with ordinary people who are not highly educated. They may want to be they may be interested in ideas, but they don't know the lingo. They don't know what they're supposed to say. Uh, They don't know the whatever the current terminology is. And it is it is fascinating to me that our, our present day idea of how to build the left is the opposite. You know, it is endlessly to scold.
0: Well, what strikes me about that is the power of something like the Highlander Folk School in the 1930s yes. to the 1950s. Yes, so I left yeah. them
1: out of the story. I left them out of the story. But yes, that's so you know that. Okay. Yeah,
0: but but what's interesting to me is that Miles Horton, one of the founders of Highlander, was trained at Union Theological Seminary. He's thinking in these kind of religious terms, even though he wouldn't necessarily use that language in building popular movements. He studied how exactly, I, what, and I haven't read Larry Goodwin, but I imagine what Larry Goodwin is picking up on as well, is that there's a, a certain type of patience when you're evangelizing. You can't just go in and say you're a sinner, you're dead. You have to actually be patient with the people where they are. Am I hearing that correctly, or would you say it a different way?
1: That is exactly correct, and you're you 're describing one of the sort of foremost populist institutions in American life that trained a lot of the great civil rights leaders you know and the, 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 um, the, this is where uh, this is where reform that is the tradition that reformers come out of in American life you know and and you, you you brought me right back to the 1930s this sort of great decade in not only politics but in art and culture of reverence for the common people you know you think of the grapes of wrath you think of the wpa murals you think of woody guthrie and uh, and today we all that it's as though all that is gone and we expect change to happen if we just yell at people enough and tell them what what screw-ups they are by the way populism had a, a lot of religion it had a religious sensibility but they had to stay away from religion because obviously that's um you can't have a movement like that that's that has a that has a particular uh, religious bent to it where you'd, you'd be excluding a lot of people because you had like a lot of your sort of town atheists in it. People who are into Robert Ingersoll were, were, were prominent in populism. Uh, Eugene Debs, who was as Christ like a figure as America has ever produced, but was at the same time an atheist. You know, the, all these guys were populists. Well, what's
0: interesting to me as we begin to talk about the kind of parallels that we see between religion and populism is you then focus in, in the 1970s and 80s, on the figure of Pat Buchanan, who takes religion and takes populism, but then kind of does the flip that we're talking about. Tell us a little bit about Pat Buchanan.
1: So Pat Buchanan is, for me, the great evil genius of fake populism, of building these kind of replicas of mass movements and leading people. In a very different direction, using the same language, superficially the same language, he's a very, very intelligent man. But you look at the history of his career. So Pat Buchanan, as we all know, ran for president several times as a, you know, as a, as an independent, or, or first as a Republican, and then as a third party candidate. But before he did that, he was a speechwriter for Richard Nixon, and he's the one that steered Nixon in this kind of fake populist direction. He wrote Nixon's uh, silent majority speech, for example, which is one of the sort of landmarks in, this, in the tradition of, of you know, the Republicans reaching out to average working people and luring them over to the Republican side, a tradition, by the way, which is in full flower You know, right now. And then Pep Buchanan then proceeded to run his own campaigns as a Republican using really kind of hilarious and clever sort of pseudo populist language, you know, always accusing his opponents of being in the pocket of billionaires. Uh, He called Bob Dole an errand boy of the (laughs) business roundtable. You know, he brought this kind of workerist language into the Republican Party and uh, was, you know, was the first Republican to figure out that if he went against trade agreements, trade agreements that had been written by Republicans, by Ronald Reagan and et cetera. If he opposed those, he could uh, bring in all sorts of new voters into the Republican Party. And Donald Trump really picked up where Buchanan left off, really learned all of his lessons about, about politics from Buchanan and is, is uh, well, I think Buchanan would probably have been a better, a more competent president than Trump. But Trump is basically a successful pet Buchanan. Wow. Uh, there's, there's a lot more to dig in
0: there, but I, I want to reach behind that then, and I want to go back to a figure in American history that is lifted up by both the populists and the anti-populists, and one who has a very complex relationship to religion. I'm thinking of Thomas Jefferson. I'm thinking of, about both the, the kind of ultra-libertarian—and I'm, I'm using that in the technical sense, not the modern political sense—but the kind of ultra-libertarian, working agrarian of the people kind of bents of Thomas Jefferson— But also the 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 writer of like the the various uh, compacts that helped to secure religious liberty and freedom here in the United States. He was the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty. So tell us a little bit about Thomas Jefferson and how his shadow sort of looms over both of these wings of populism and anti-populism that you're looking at in the book.
1: Well, let me preface this by saying I I was an undergraduate at the University of Virginia, which is founded by Jefferson and he even designed all the buildings, you know, and he is or was at the time back in the 80s was sort of worshipped as a kind of household God there and you know there are people who know so much more about thomas jefferson than me you know there there is you know there's a seven volume biography of him and that kind of thing and uh but he is uh the the way the populists read their jefferson the way they saw thomas jefferson he was the guiding spirit of american radicalism you know and i don't just mean the stuff about uh yeoman he wanted a country of of independent yeoman farmers they 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 liked that you know, obviously that's very flattering if you are a yeoman farmer, but they also saw, you know, something more than that. His opposition to banks and corporations, his hatred of hierarchies of nearly social hierarchies of nearly every kind, his opposition to orthodoxy even. I mean, uh, we really it really is Thomas Jefferson's country. And it's funny, we have so much trouble dealing with his legacy. Now, I mean, it's not funny. It's it's obvious. You know, Jefferson's legacy is really, really problematic and troubled to imagine I by the way I was once I took a tour of Monticello recently and I took the slave tour I decided to uh, I wanted to you know I never knew about that sort of aspect of his life and it was absolutely fascinating one of the facts that I didn't know and it, it really changes your idea of Jefferson the desk on which he wrote the Declaration of Independence all men are created equal the desk on which he wrote that was carved by a slave it sort of blows your mind that really is um, and when we think
0: about these stories when we think about the stories that we tell ourselves you said earlier that history is sort of sung in the present that history is is really done from the present i'm thinking about the storytellers that we turn to and uh, you get your title the people know from a flipping of you, you say it's now an unknown poem mostly by carl sandberg a, a body of poems called the people yes i happen to know uh, sandberg pretty well i named my production company after him so i was very happy to hear.
1: You knew Carl
0: Sandberg? No, I I know Carl Sandberg's work in the sense that I'm a a big fan of of him and his poetry and his writing. But I'm I'm wondering, as we're coming to the end of our conversation, when you look back and you saw Carl Sandberg sort of talking about the people laughing— laughing and talking yes. and
1: you know, all that. Tell us a little bit. I, about. I it. love that poem. So that's a you're in Chicago. You yes. Know it. And it's it's a it's overquoted in Chicago. But I was comparing the sort of the glum, censorious, uh, scolding liberalism that we live with today. You know, that's that's always shaking its finger at people lower down in the social hierarchy and telling them to behave and comparing that with Carl Sandberg's what I think. I love Carl Sandburg his sort of glorious vision of ordinary Americans which you see in that wonderful poem Chicago you know where he describes the life of the city the you know the life of the people sort of a working class guy laughing and that's uh, yeah that's my favorite image from him although there's uh, admittedly there's there's many he is he is a wonderful a wonderful guy wonderful poet when we're thinking about that, who who
0: should we turn to now as the storytellers, the singers of our age, the singers of the common folk now? Like, what? oh, my God, where would we where would David, we find there, that?
1: There goes my bus? I got to go. See ya.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so so what I'm saying, you're <laughs> no, saying is that you don't want to you don't want to touch that. Question. I, I,
1: I don't I don't even know anymore. I don't even know. I mean, where does the Carl Sandburg tradition take you anymore? I mean, I, I can tell you that there is. um. <laughs> There's people who understand everything I'm describing in this book and are doing their best. Like you look at the Bernie Sanders movement, Sanders got it. Sanders understood this stuff. Sanders tried to build a movement, but it uh, you know it hasn't really worked out. I'm not optimistic about politics in this country. I'm not optimistic about where we're going. I mean we're here in a global pandemic. I'm sort of quarantined in a house in Kansas City and you know, I go out and nobody's wearing. It. It, it, it's. I'm. I'm very pessimistic right now, and I don't see a Carl Sandberg. I mean, am I missing something? You maybe you should tell me. Who Who should I be? Who should I be optimistic about?
0: And when I see the movements in the streets, when I see people who are actually trying to find some way in the midst of neoliberalism to take back some power and to take back their voice, I will admit I'm. I'm hopeful, but like you, I'm not necessarily optimistic. And, and that's yes. a weird. Place exactly. to be. Oh,
1: oh no, that's. I think that's fair. I am hopeful about. Well, let me put it this way. I am hopeful about Black Lives Matter or I have hope about them, but it is just a hope. I mean, it's a movement that that has its feet on very firm populist ground. You think about that name, Black Lives Matter. But it needs to move into the it needs to take the next step and become this transracial movement of working people that is focused on economic, you know, that's focused on economic issues. That's sort of my definition of populism. And they're real close to it. They're real close to it. And I look forward to the day they take that step. But it's almost as though. Our civilization is set up to make that impossible. And immediately you have all this, you know, the woke capital that is that is trying to swipe the righteousness of this movement. It's all over the place. And I I hope they take that next step. But uh, I don't know. Well, Thomas
0: Frank, I am such a fan of your writing. I have I've followed you when you were writing for Harper's. I have read others of your books. I'm so grateful to get the chance to talk to you. This is a big thing for me. And I, I very much enjoyed and learned from your book that people know. I hope that we will have more opportunities to go into these issues in the future. I would love for you to come back and be on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time and thank you for writing the book.
1: Hey, it was my pleasure, and thank you for having me on your show. And say hello to my favorite city, Chicago, Illinois.
0: A former columnist for The Wall Street Journal and Harper's Magazine, Thomas Frank is the founding editor of The Baffler and writes regularly for The Guardian. He's the author of Listen, Liberal, Pity the Billionaire, The Wrecking Crew, and What's the Matter with Kansas? He lives outside Washington, D.C., and today we're talking about his recent book, The People Know, A Brief History of Anti-Populism.